This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine issues of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, this is going to be a really interesting episode. I think you're going to like it. I'm going to be speaking with Arthur Schenker, and he is from uh, Smart Recovery, and he goes back uh, a long ways back with, uh, I'd say back to the beginning of Smart Recovery, so he knows a lot about it. And I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit of his story and learn about Smart Recovery, some of the tools. And I think that he actually has some uh, interesting uh, kind of twist on some of the tools and has had, had something to do with the development, maybe, of some of those tools. So it'll be really interesting to learn um, about that. Arthur, welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. So nice to have you here. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, um, I told you uh, when we were talking before this podcast and that I uh, had some familiarity with SMART, but I'm embarrassed because compared to you, I know absolutely nothing. I did take the training and I've done nothing with it, but attend a few meetings. Uh, but I do have a lot of respect for SMART and I'm glad that, that we have that resource for people. And um, I hope that Someday soon, I'll be able to take take more advantage of the smart that we have going on here. But why don't we start, Arthur, if you don't mind, um, giving us a little bit of your background and how you got involved with smart recovery. Okay. Well, my uh, background is I, I when I first got uh, started with everything, I was living in Las Vegas. And uh, I was in a hotel casino business down in Las Vegas. And uh, while I was uh, in, in, in what I did in the hotel business or Las Vegas, is we is I actually was the president of one of the one of the major uh, hotel casinos called the Dunes Hotel back there in the seventies and eighties. But I also had when we left the hotel, got into a problem with cocaine. <laughs> so, so my story is not too different than most other people's stories, and it brought me to my knees. And after a period of time, I don't do war stories, so I, I don't go into an elongated thing about using or anything like that because to me it's useless <laughs> thank you thank uh, you thank you <laughs> yeah it's a useless to me it's a, a very useless thing but uh what happened is i one day woke up and said i'm done i'm finished kaput and that was the last time i ever had an urge or a craving and i'm in my 29th year and never you know never recreationally used at all anything never drank i was never a drinker and um checked myself into a treatment center and when i got out uh and they had an aftercare uh, they, the aftercare double master degree, uh, psychotherapist taught me the cognitive behavioral therapy approach and the rational motor behavioral approach. And that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. You learned and, that in therapy. Huh? You learn it in therapy. You learned that about well, it. it was an aftercare. Oh, an aftercare. To be a, right. Okay. So I was in a group, it was a group setting and that made sense to me. And there was a thing called rational recovery that was going on back then that was our friend Jack Trempe, I don't know how much you know about Jack Trempe, but he created Rational Recovery back in the mid-80s. And I started facilitating Rational Recovery groups back in 1993, cleaned up in 92, but in 93, I started doing that. And that was the precursor to SMART. So if I can give you some history there, Joe Gerstein, who is the founding president of SMART Recovery, who is a, a retired MD now, but was a, a professor of medicine at Harvard, uh, went out to a conference. He's a humanist. And they were having a humanist convention out in Sacramento. And Jack Trempe was one of the speakers. And when Jack uh, spoke, Joe listened and said, wow, 
I've really been interested in, in, in addiction and, and, uh, and maladaptive behaviors. He said, and so he and Jack got together and created what is known today as smart recovery. Now, the two of them had a split off because Jack wanted to do it for profit. And smart recovery is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. And it is international. So that was a split off. And that kind of took place around 94. And so we've been going since 1994, officially a smart recovery. But there was a period of time I was kind of, was, I was in a hiatus because I never had heard of smart recovery, funny enough, until uh, much later on. And then I got involved with SMART, and which stands for self-management and uh, recovery training. And, that's, and, that, and I started doing that. And if you allow me, I'll kind of uh, give you a little bit of uh, what we want, what we do. Is that absolutely? I love it. Okay. So what we want to do is we want to empower people to be able to make better choices and decisions for themselves, and we do that by using again science and evidence-based programs such as medically uh, medically assisted treatments. We we believe in. We also believe in, in using concepts from cognitive behavioral therapy. Rational motor behavioral therapy, and there's another one that's uh, motivational enhancement therapy that we use. And I'll kind of go through them all and explain what they are. Now, of course, medically assisted treatments is when you and your doctor get together and you get medications that may help you with your uh, with your urges, cravings, and uh, and addictive behaviors. And we found that there are some similar ones to both alcohol and drugs, and there are some that are exclusive to each one of those. But that's something that you go over with your doctor. We, we, we're not therapists or we're not um, doctors and, you know, or the facilitators. So we do that. Now, motivational enhancement therapy is when we start using one of the best tools we have, which is called motivational interviewing. The who, what, why, where, and how questions to get people to talk. And what we want to do is get them to realize what their problem is by asking them the proper questions. And that's why it's enhancement therapy. We want to enhance them to figure this out for themselves. Yeah, we, we've known for a long time that most people that have a problem actually have their own answer to the problem. And sometimes it takes somebody to help bring it out. And that's one of the main things. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy, or I'll start with rational motor behavioral therapy, was developed in the 1950s by Albert Ellis. And what rational motor behavioral therapy is rational, the way you think which influences emotive, the way you feel, which influences the uh, behavior decisions you make uh, in your behavior. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy was uh, created by Aaron Beck in the 1960s, which kind of took over REBT, rational motor behavioral therapy. And the cognitive behavioral therapy is, again, the way you think, your behavior, and of course, therapy is therapy. But what we but what they did was they kind of lumped Aaron kind of lumped everything together and said the thought, the feelings, and the behavior kind of all happened at the same moment. Um, so and, and we use the concepts from really all three of those different uh, items uh, in order to conduct our meetings. Uh, and Smart has four points right in the star. So you're, you're building and maintaining motivation. You're coping with your urges, and you're managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And living a balanced life. Those yeah, are the basic principles. Lifestyle. Right. Right. And, and you use ahead. these tools to kind of help you with each of these basic uh, points, right? You do. Now, before we get to the tools, though, I think we ought to point out one other thing. 
we also utilize the stages of change. Yes, that's real important, isn't it? Yes, that's very important because unlike other programs, uh, other 12-step programs, whether they're agnostic or the spiritual, you know, the uh, spiritual ones, um, they use a calendar year and they say 30, 60, 90 days, you get rewarded, you get a chip, you get a key tag, you know, whatever. We use the stages of change. And the stage of change, we break down, there's five major ones, and then there's a sixth one. Uh, a guy named, uh, a psychologist named Prokaskis, and then another one, uh, Carlo De Clementi, were the ones that created stages of change. And what they are, very simple. Stage one is pre-contemplation. I do not have a problem. Right. It's total denial. You're not even thinking about getting help or anything. Yeah. Yeah. There is no help because I, I don't have a problem. So stage two is contemplation. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. And what it is, it's a stage where you tend to want to moderate or control it, your use, whether no matter what it is. And it's kind of like you're ambivalent. It's that ambivalent stage. I may have, but I may not. Now you get into stage three, and that's called preparation. That's when you really realize that, yeah, I got something going on here, and I have a problem. And what do I do about it? Do I go to inpatient? Do I do intensive outpatient? Do I do sober living? Do I do counseling? Do I do medically assisted treatments? Do I do smart recovery? Do I do a 12-step program? What's my plan? And you put a plan in place. The fourth stage is the action stage. And that's where you put it into action and you your plan. And you start doing the different things that you planned. Uh, then you have a fifth stage, which is maintenance. After a period of time, you go into maintenance. And then after maintenance, we have the sixth stage, which is the termination stage. That when you're ready, that's when you do that fourth pillar. You go and live your balanced lifestyle. So we're not a lifelong program. However, however, the stages of change are not linear. Okay, they're spiral. So you can be in the action stage and let's say have a lapse or a relapse. You can still be going to meetings, so you're still in the action stage. But in the meantime, you're also in the, maybe the contemplative stage where you go back because you're attempting to control or moderate again. So you can actually be in more than one stage at the same time. Now a lapse or a relapse is not a stage, it's an event, okay? And it can happen in any stages, in any one of the stages. But you know what? There's nothing written that says you must have a lapse or a relapse. And there's nothing written that you won't have one. So we deal with it as they come. I'm thinking too, you could be like, um, you could be like in the maintenance stage for like your drinking, right? And then, mm -hmm. but you could be in the pre-contemplation stage with your gambling or some other problem. You could have another problem, more than one. That's exactly right. And, but, but, you know, the way I look at it and the way a lot of other uh, facilitators look at it is even though we are abstinent-oriented, uh, if somebody came into my meeting and they said, I'm having a problem with alcohol, but I'm smoking pot, and they say, but alcohol is my problem. Well, I'll focus on the problem at hand and deal with the alcohol. Once, if that, once we get that under control, if they want to deal with the pot smoking, then we'll deal with that. Personally, I'm more open to dealing with what they're coming in, in for as opposed to, 
taking on the okay it's time to quit smoking it's time to quit <laughs> right, caffeine right, it's right. time to quit this time to you know it's, it's you know too much. you can overwhelm people <laughs> yeah. and and it's probably and normal too over time as you as you um as you get as you get better and get to know yourself better that you start realizing oh i've got other issues too that i need to look at right and we also lump and you i'm really glad you brought up gambling because we also lump all the different male adaptive behaviors and addictive behaviors under one roof. We don't have a different one for cocaine. We don't have a different one for opiates. We don't have a different one for alcohol or other drugs. Uh, you have people that come in that have uh, uh, internet sex problems. You have people that come in that have anorexia or uh, bulimia or uh, overeating. Uh, you have people that come in over shoppers. Okay. So I mean, smart we, is focusing like on a behavior, not necessarily looking at it like some sort of a disease or something. Is that, is, is that fair to say? We don't want to do, and what we don't do, there's a couple of different theories or concepts about the disease concept. This is not, what I'm going to say now is not what we talk about in a smart recovery. There's, but when you talk about a disease concept, with some people that can be very stigmatizing. They say, I can never get healed. Absolutely. With other people... It's like it gives them, they, they finally figure out, hey, that's why I do it. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it can work either direction. Right, right. But, in, but in the meantime, we don't get into that discussion. Yeah, because, okay, because we don't want to be part of the uh, problem. Yeah, right. So we don't discuss whether it's a disease, yeah. a disorder, or a uh, behavior. Gotcha. What we say is no matter which one you believe, you have a choice. Yeah. So we take that, con- we don't even discuss it. We let, let, let the medical professionals and the a- AMA and the psychiatrists, let, <laughs> right. let, let them, let them uh, deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So what should we talk about some of the tools that you use? And did you mention that you kind of, um, kind of maybe altered or, or did something original with some of these tools? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's the nice thing about uh, being in a scientific based um, type of recovery program is that it's ever evolving and th- and things happen and you know people say to me um you know it says you sort of know a lot well i learned from people within the group quite a bit and and somebody says how do you know so much i said i don't i just make this up as i go along <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of it believe it or not is common sense sure okay sure. and it because when somebody says to me that they thought of you and we'll get to the specific tools in a minute but when somebody says to me I had a urge to use and I said, well, what happened? Well, they said, I started thinking about, well, what would happen if I use, what would be the risk of using? Uh, what, what, what could be the consequences? And do I really feel that bad? I mean, is there a reason why I feel that bad that I want to use? Is there a reason why that trigger is triggering me so much? And they start thinking it through. And I, and I will say to them, what tool do you think you used? And they'll come back with, I don't know. And I'll say, well, you've used a little bit of your values, hierarchy of values, because they thought about their values going away. They thought about the risks of using, which is a risk-reward analysis. And, and they were doing what we call an ABC, which they were figuring out the activating event, the, the beliefs, and the consequences, and then how to dispute, et cetera. And they had no idea that that's what they were doing. And so that's why common sense really plays into this quite a bit. It is common sense. Okay. So I just mentioned uh, three different tools. The ABCs 
most people, and that was created by Albert Ellis, and that's one of the things that are still left over from the rational motor behavioral therapy part. And, and they're used quite extensively. Uh, where most of the most facilitators start, and they start at the C with uh, the ABCs, and the C are the consequences. And the consequence could be that you have a, uh, that you feel like you've really been misjudged and, just, and you're been unjustly treated, et cetera. And the consequence is that you fell into this trap of a real emotional upset. Well, we want to find out from the C what created the event to begin with. So we go to the A, then the belief about A, about that activating event, whatever it is. I more start with the A and go right through the alphabet. <laughs> okay. And that's the way I kind of learned it back with, with the original. And if somebody has, so somebody comes in with a lapse or had a lapse or a relapse, uh, I just say, well, what was the activating event? And a lot of times they have trouble with it. And I, you know, so I keep asking questions until we finally figure out what was it that triggered that thought of using? And then we get into the belief. What was your belief about that? Well, the belief was, is that I felt really bad. Uh, I wanted to numb myself. I wanted to not have to feel this. And if I ask a few more questions, usually it comes out that this time I might be different. This time I can control it. This time, um, you know, I'll be able to moderate. And the consequences, this won't be as bad. Then we get to, then I broke it down with the, con with the consequences into two different consequences. Instead of having one, I break it down into two. So the two are, one, I used, okay? Second consequence is, what were the consequences from using? Make sense? Does this make sense, yeah. Okay, and then I'll say, now what if we took that, the D, and dispute B, the unhealthy belief, unhel or unhelpful belief, and we use the consequences of past events or the most recent event to dispute that belief that this time it'll be different, or this time I can control it or moderate. What would the effect of that be if you had another lapse, if you played that tape forward? You know, if you had that urge to want to use again, would you have a different effect? Would it be, would you make a different decision? And, and that's the way I use that tool uh, for the most part. But again, instead of starting with C, I start with the A. Instead of just having one C, I broke it down into two Cs. So I kind of taken that tool and recreated the way I use it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Okay. Another one of our big tools, John, is uh, the hierarchy of values. And that is probably, that's one of my favorite ones. Because if you ask somebody, and I don't know, did you, I don't know if you ever had a problem in the past uh, with alcohol or drugs mm -hmm. yourself. I have, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you mind if I take you through that? Sure. And we'll see how this works. Absolutely. Okay. What were three or four, give me four things that you really value in your life? Oh boy. Well, um, I would say, uh, independence. I would say, um, having, uh, some security, a job, um, a relationship. Um, that's three of them. I guess just, uh, having a good sense of, uh, uh, my, uh, a sense of self-esteem, I guess, a sense of, um, self-worth. Yeah. Self-worth. Yeah. Okay. So where did alcohol, was it alcohol? Where did alcohol fit into those values? Oh boy. Well, I, uh, I couldn't have relationships. Uh, that was, uh, not possible for me. Uh, I, uh, couldn't hold a job. 
Uh, I was uh, getting in trouble with the law a lot. It was looking like looking like I might go to jail. So uh, really, just couldn't have much of a life together. So I wasn't, and I didn't feel very good about myself either. So okay, yeah. So so in other words, again, where did alcohol fit in? If you like, you gave me a list, and 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 and, you, and what I'm thinking is because the way they came up from the top to the bottom one, they were prioritizing that list a bit. So where on that list did alcohol fit in? Alcohol took the priority. Alcohol was the priority. Okay. Uh, 95% of the people you ask that question to say it doesn't fit in. It doesn't fit in. Okay. But the 5%, which you just became a part of, (laughs) said it came first. Yeah. It well, that's too because I've been in recovery for so long, though, too, and I know that now. But, but, but you're right. If I would, if I would transport myself back in time to 1988, I probably would say it doesn't fit in anywhere. Right, and and the point is, when we ask that question, what happened to those values? Yeah, you give up your when values. you were drinking. They kind of went by the wayside. They do. They absolutely do. Yeah, and I would be able to see that going back. You know, like I say, as a as a guy just starting out. Absolutely. Cause I, I, what I, I tell you how I thought about it when I was first getting um, sober, what killed me was that I, um, I knew when I was younger and I was young at the time, I was 25 when I stopped drinking, but I looked back at myself when I was in high school, when I still had possibilities of being something and what I became had, was absolutely nothing, had nothing in common with what I thought I was or wanted to be. And it just, I just couldn't believe that I had allowed that to happen. Hmm. That's how I felt at the time. Okay. And that's, and that's very, very normal. That's not something that is something I've heard a lot. So it's not uncommon. And, and, and I'd look for commonalities, but anyway, to get back to the values. So when we finally figure out that the, that, that, that came first, and and again, I, we bring it back to the to, to that if you had another urge to use, and you started thinking, what are these values of it that I'm going to lose? I'm going to lose if I drink, and you made that choice. And let's say your choice is, I'm not going to drink. Do you think that that would help build your motivation not to drink? If I made a choice not to drink, would it build my motivation? I think it would. Would build your motivation, right? And also, doesn't it show that you're changing the way you're managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors? So isn't it amazing? We just overcame an urge, pillar two, and yet it had it had a big degree of how it influenced, one, building and maintaining motivation, and number three, manage your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. In my early times of sobriety, like my first 30, 60, maybe even 90 days, uh, one of the things that motivated me not to drink, and I had urges to drink a lot, was just fear of <laughs> the fear of what happens when I drank. Would that be part of that, you think? Uh, I mean, I, the fear of going to jail again. That was my biggest fear. Okay. So here's where I made a change in the tool. <laughs> and I created something a little bit different. Now, when I do that, now that's what, the way we do the hierarchy of values in a for a one-on-one with a person. And that's the way they're written. I do what I call a reverse hierarchy of values, a reverse HOV in the group. So what I ask the group is what values are missing when I'm using, okay? So when using, what values are missing? That list, when you have a group, 
telling you that list can be, it can end up being 25, 30 items. Uh, you're not honest. You're not, you know, you know, your integrity is gone. The honesty is gone. The trust is gone. The relationship is gone. You know, at the, your, your family is at risk. Uh, your, your ability to uh, want to succeed or meet your goals is at risk. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Then I asked the question, what are your values when you're not using? Now, keep in mind, there's two columns on this. Okay, so column on the left is values missing when using. Column on the right is values when not using. So I asked the group, so what are your values when not using? Now, they're looking at this list. Right, right, right. <clears throat> and they look at it, they say, well, wait a minute. Can't, don't those all come over to the right side? And I go, well, yeah. So we draw some arrows, taking it from left to right. Okay, now the question comes, how do you get those values back? The answer is abstinence, recovery, sobriety. I mean, to me, it, they're all synonymous. Okay. And then I ask the question, is, is it worth giving up one thing to get all these values back? Or is it worth doing one thing to have all these values missing? And, I, and that tool is now going to be part of Smart Recovery. Cool. Cool. So I kind of changed the hierarchy of values by doing it with a, within a group. So that's one of the uh, tools that, uh, that I did. I created that's going to be part of it, I believe. I haven't gotten the official word yet, but I believe it's going to be get in there. Cool. Yeah, I was wondering what the process might be for, because like you said, SMART is based on science. So as new information becomes available, you know, they, they might change something, mm -hmm. right? I wonder what what that process is like, and if 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 there has been much change over the years. Well, psychologically, they found a lot of different things. Obviously, you know, doctors and psychologists, and you know, you know, looking at all this, and but you know, we look at the you know, we look at more of the commonsensical type tools to use, and those can change in a moment. Because again, you know, I, if I'm in a meeting, and and I'm doing a check in which is what we do. And we'll go into that in a minute. I hear, so I may have a plan to present a tool, but when I hear the check-in, that could totally change what I do when it comes time to do a tool. And a lot of times I do a verbal tool because somebody's having an issue. So we take it through just like you and I have been talking and we take a tool through verbally. It doesn't have to always be on the whiteboard or, you know, or, or, or on a screen on a, on a whiteboard. So sometimes we are even showing it on a screen. Uh, so, you know, we can, we do it verbally a lot of times. And it's amazing what people get out of it. Another thing I use, which is not going to be really a tool, but it's just a thinking process is we call it, I call it catch it, check it, change it. Now, when you use that, it's more like catch the thought, check it, acknowledge what it is. And once you realize what it is, change it to something else, distract yourself and change it. Because we find that a lot of times, you know, even though I'll, I'll get the argument from people, mm -hmm. but it always proves to be correct is that you can't necessarily just stop a thought. You can't or can't, you can't. You, you cannot. Yeah, that's right. Thoughts just happen. Thoughts just happen. Yep. And you can't just arbitrarily say stop. Right, right. Okay. But what you can do with a thought is change it. And that's a distraction. That's why they say change it. Distract yourself. 
And so one of our big tools is use, learning how to use distractions, finding something that interests you. Because if you're thinking of this over here, you can't be thinking of that over there. Right. Makes yeah, sense? That does make sense. Makes total sense. So that's a way to do that. And again, that's something that I just basically came up with. Although somebody in Canada sent me a thing that caused, that's called Catch a Check and Change It. It has this whole big readout, but it's not part of SMART. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I use it uh, all the time. Uh, it, it, and, and I heard this from somebody five years ago, and it just made sense to me. Another thing that I, that I like using, and this came from a young lady who was having an issue because one other thing that we found in, in smart recovery and just in general, that what if I suggested to you that alcohol and drugs weren't the problem? Hmm. What would you think of that? If alcohol and drugs weren't the problem? Yeah. What if I said to you, alcohol and drugs are not the problem? Well, that would be interesting if, if, you know, looking at myself coming in, um, seeking help and when alcohol seemed to point at all my problems, so I'd say, well, what is my problem? Your problem was the choices you made to use them. Ah, yeah. And, and sometimes we want to get into oh, that. Oh, isn't that the truth though? Because it's not necessarily, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the truth though? Cause it's not necessarily alcohol itself. It was my decision. It was my thinking to, that, I, uh, that was really the problem, wasn't it? Because I obviously, if you look at the facts, my drinking was out of control, but I always made that choice to drink. Right. So the point is that if we can figure out what's causing you to make that choice. Yeah, boy. Maybe you change because that's, that's, that's what I call reframing your thinking. That is so powerful. And it, and it's so quick too. you get right to it. <laughs> if you go through a 12 step process, it takes a long, long time to finally get to that point. But, but uh, the, with, the, with the 12 step process, a lot of it, and I don't, and I don't want to sit here and don't want to bash it of any, in any way, shape or form, but the 12 step process keeps you in a lot of ways in the past. It does. It does. You just, that is so true. That's one big difference. Cause you're looking now and smart, you're looking at your immediate um, reactions, behaviors, thoughts, feelings. So what's going, going on, on now, now? What's going on now and moving forward? Right. Not looking at what I was upset about many years ago. That's okay. so true. So, That's very true. So with that being said, you can't change the past and you can't control it anymore. So if you dwell on it, one of the little sayings that I use is don't judge yourself by your past. You don't live there anymore. Okay. And, and it's not my saying, it's just a saying that I use. And, um, you know, again, it makes sense that when you start dwelling, that by itself can cause urges and cravings on a use because you're starting to say, if I'd have done this, if I'd have done that, oh, if only this didn't happen, oh, you know, and you start that, you know, ruminating, you know, there's no end to it. it it's, um, you know, over, overthinking. And we don't want to cause that either. And a lot of times, a lot of other programs create that overthinking. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Oh, it makes total sense. So, so in other words, where other programs are giving you more of a spiritual type awakening, smart recovery is a problem solving. We're problem solvers. And a lot of the tools we use can be used in everyday life, not just rec- not just with recovery. Right. And it's really, um, you're really helping the person find their own way, right? It's their, it's their, they're self-directed. They're, they're, they're deciding for themselves what their recovery is going to look like. But that sense of community also works because when they hear, like, for instance, if I wanted to bring in, if I brought in 
10 different people into a room and they are all of different backgrounds, races, creeds, religions, etc. I could sit there and ask, what are the cultural differences between all of you? What are, what's your thinking about this? And what's your thinking about this? And what, and I go get, and I'll get 10 different answers, but I don't look for the differences. What I look for is what are the commonalities? What do we all have in common here? And, and when you, and when this person hears that this other person is going through the same thing they are, it actually makes them feel more at ease. It does. Is that, is that, does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yeah. So, so I look for the commonalities too. That might be a good place here to talk about what a smart meeting is actually like, because you do have, you do have some interaction, right? With the other people in the meetings and you have a facilitator there. Can you kind of talk about how the whole thing works? What a meeting is like? Absolutely. So when you start a meeting, what I, what I do is uh, make a bit of an introduction and especially when there's new people there. And the first thing we do once we get all, we get through that, which is for me, it's very quick. And uh, so I don't really spend a lot of time on that, just maybe a minute or two. But we start what they do with, with a check-in. And we always ask if somebody's brand new, the two questions I have is, how did you find out about us? And what brought you here? Now, I keep my meetings very loose. So if somebody says to me, well, my therapist uh, recommended this to me, or referred me to Smart Recovery, and alcohol brought me here. Well, I might say to them, I'm sorry, we don't have any here. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, so we get, so we, so they get the idea that one, it can be fun. It can be loose. And I also find that it's kind of a form of mindfulness. And if you get people laughing, right, it empties their mind and they're able to take in more information. But anyway, we do a check-in and we, what I want to know is again, if they're brand new, a little bit of history, but not a lot, because we don't want to do drunk alongs and drug alongs. Yeah. Yeah. That can and, almost be traumatizing sometimes to have to rehash and rehear some uh, of the yeah, well, things. Yeah. It um if you notice when you ask me about my story, you don't very you notice how short that was. Yeah. You yeah. know, I used, I got treatment <laughs> that's I was, right. uh, and I was done. <laughs> I mean, that's my story. That's, you know? there you go. So and we also discourage, by the way, and we say this in the beginning, I say that we discourage the use of labels like alcoholic or Yeah. Yeah, I know that. So too, yeah. that's part of that's part of it too. People like that because it is stigmatizing. It is stigmatizing. It's a label. It is. So we do a check in. We want to find out what's been going on for the last week or two and see if they've had any issues or concerns or everything can be going great. Okay. Now we sit there and, and when somebody comes up with an issue, I stop and we deal with that issue and we make suggestions. We might take them to a tool to figure out a, a problem they're having. But we make suggestions. We don't give advice. And we surely don't tell anybody what to do. And because we found that if we tell somebody what to do, you usually get the double single finger salute saying, who are you to right. tell me what to do? <laughs> now, do those suggestions come only from the facilitator or do other members no. of the group? What we do is we, we include the group in all this. Okay. And the, and the group might give suggestions from their own because it is peer support. We give suggestions from their own uh, experiences. That's the hope. That's the power of this. Yes. Right. Um, and, and again, it's not advice. It's only what they found to be useful for them. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, every now and then, if no one comes up with anything, uh, I might give a suggestion or something, but, but for the most part, we want everybody else in the room to talk. Now, the main thing of a smart meeting is a discussion, crosstalk, feedback, where other groups, you share, 
Everyone and else no is quiet. Crosstalk is allowed. Right. right. We want the crosstalk. You want the crosstalk, right? We want it. We want that feedback. We want everybody to, if somebody has an issue, I want somebody on my on the right side to give their feedback about that. Okay. That's the big difference between us and, and other programs. Then you we get into that discussion, you know, with individuals. Now, some some facilitators do a two-minute check-in. I let the people do what they need, what they have to say. And but we always do the tools as they're talking and uh, introduce something uh, while that's going on. Then at the end of the meeting, we do a check on and ask them what they got out of today's meeting. What are they going to keep? And you'll hear uh, that's such a community. I'm not alone. Uh, I like that. Uh, catch it, check it, change it. I like uh, that we did that hierarchy of values. I like that we did risk reward. I don't do a cost benefit analysis anymore, by the way. Oh, okay. Because in a cost benefit analysis. The benefits are in the first square. And I don't want people to think of the benefits. And there were benefits they wouldn't be using to begin with. But I don't want them thinking that way. I want to think of the risks of using. So I use a risk reward. Risk of the first is the first square there. Yeah, I like that. I think I like that too. The risk, the risk and reward versus the cost and benefit the benefit. Yeah. Right. Uh now it says cost benefit. So in essence, if it was the way it said, the cost would be the first square. But the way it's written out is they have the benefits being the first square. I want people to think of the costs first or the risks. They think of those. There are not so many. So the meeting actually flows very well. And that hour and a half goes by very quickly, you know, because a lot of things could be talked about. And the different roles that you have in SMART. So I I know you have a facilitator, but don't you also have some, uh, there's another um, role that you can have there. And what's it called that help kind of a person that helps the facilitator? Oh, you can have a meeting helper. Yeah. Okay. You can have a host. Yes. A host, I'm thinking, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, some of the SROL meetings, meaning smart recovery online, can get up to 160. Yeah, I've been to some people. of those. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, they usually have a, have a meeting helper that will do the typing or or throw in a tool like on the chat line or something of that nature. Uh, normally. Uh, and then some some facilitators in some areas make teams up, so they have teams that interchange with their groups. I'm kind of a I, I kind of like doing my own meetings and um, and working at myself. But uh, but but everybody's a little bit different. I mean, it's it's uniform in in some respects and very individualized in others. I don't know that you ever hear two facilitators exactly alike. Yeah. Yeah, and that that I I find that really interesting. You do have a lot of freedom, don't you, as a facilitator to kind of, yeah, I mean, you might have some sort of a basic structure and tools and so forth, but you do have some freedom to create your own sort of meeting, don't you? Right. And as I said, you kind of go with what and you kind of go with the flow. Um as I said, I don't go in. I used to go in with a plan. And I found out that sometimes the plan didn't fit. So I started going into saying, let me see what what comes up out of the discussion you know, out of the check-in. I'm kind of interested how SMART's doing with COVID. And the reason I'm interested is because SMART was online way before any of these other programs were. I mean, you've always had your um, SMART online. Um, you have the forum, you have the online meetings, et cetera. Have those grown since COVID and are more people learning about SMART because of COVID? Because you've ar- you already had that infrastructure in place. We already had that in place. And I, I don't know because I'm not big on the smart recovery online. I mean, my, but 
I would say that, you know, again, you can find 200, 300 people in some of those meetings. I know. Okay. And because, but I also found that when we went to Zoom for our local meetings, that a lot of people didn't like Zoom. So they kind of fell out. I know. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm not crazy about the Zoom meetings either. And part of it is because, you know, I'm online all the damn time at work. I'm having meetings online at work all the time. And the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is have another goddamn meeting online. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> But uh, but in the meantime, you know, I I use a lot of times body language. Uh, so I, if I see somebody's eyebrow go up, I may call on them. I said, "Do you have something to say?" And but but the other problem with Zoom is a lot of times they you don't catch that you don't see their face. So I I miss that one on one. But the big thing with the COVID is one of the biggest reasons that people urge and have lapses and relapses. And I've heard this before COVID was isolation and boredom, not knowing what to do in their sober or recovery life. And they get bored. Now with COVID, boredom and isolation exacerbates those other feelings that you already had. It sure does. And and that's causing a lot of, of issues because I that's probably the number one issue I hear is isolation and boredom. Oh, not man, knowing I, I totally what to get do. It. Oh, absolutely. I tell you, I, it, it gets to me and I, I'm, I've been sober for a long time. I don't think I'm going to drink, but I tell you what, this damn isolation and having all my human relationships being through a screen does get to you after a while. It really does. Well, that's when you have to find distractions. And, and again, if you distract yourself, that will take away that urge. Second thing is that we have something called a VAXI, Vital Absorbing Creative Interests. And what that is supposed to do is take the place of the alcohol or drugs yeah, or gambling kind of the podcast or whatever. For me, is that I think like what you're doing with the podcast? Yeah, yeah. Okay, as an example, is is like a vaccine for you. It's a vital absorbing creative interest. And when you think I'm getting ready to do the a podcast, I have to think that the anticipation of doing it is exciting for you. Oh, I love it. Yeah, sometimes I'm okay. actually and, nervous, and, <laughs> and it gets your dopamine's and it gets your yeah, dopamine's it flowing. It does. Right. It well. Does. It's, it's a healthier way of getting those dopamines flowing than the, than sure the alcohol or sure the drugs. Is. It sure is. And yet, when we anticipate something we enjoy doing, that'll light up your brain as though you've already done a drug or alcohol. Isn't that or interesting? I never thought about that, but you're right. It does. Just it the sure anticipation. Does. Just so thinking about you're it. You're on your way to the studio, mm-hmm. and you're saying, I'm going to interview so-and-so tonight. <laughs> and I, and, this, is what I, and I'm, this is what I'm going to ask him. And, you, and you, you're like working yourself up. You've got to feel good about that. And, but, when you're, but when it comes back to alcohol and drugs or gambling or any of the others, it's the same thing. You have that circle. And the problem is, you, like you drink. You get sick the next morning and you say, I'll never do that again. How many times have you said that when you were in, a, in your behavior? And then in the afternoon you say, hey, I'm really feeling better. I got through this. I'm okay. And then you go say, I think I'll go have a drink. You're at the anticipation stage for that. And your brain will light up just as though you had that first drink or drug. But that's where we can stop it. And that's where we can change that thought pattern is when we get there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does totally. So we're both from Missouri. And I was telling you about how I had been taking this um, peer support training for in Missouri to become a peer support specialist. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed because I have some familiarity with SMART. Some, okay. But I'm not like having done it and gone to some meetings. So I have some familiar. familiar. So anyway, I, take it, I took this class for peer support training. I thought, well, this is like SMART recovery. But you said that you met some people that came that were peer support specialists that knew nothing about smart recovery. Isn't that 
nothing about smart. Isn't that funny? You should see the material that they give you. It is almost like out of smart. But they don't make, but they don't say smart, do they? <laughs> they don't. No. That's why they don't know about smart. They don't know that they know they that that was the very interesting thing about the training. They don't talk about any specific program. They never say AA, they never say smart, they never say life ring. You know, they 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 don't SOS, all the rest none of, of that. Mm-hmm. Women for sobriety. Nope. Nope. Dharma. But, but I wonder Refuge. if when they're actually working with people, if maybe they might, because you, you got to at some point, but they don't know. You're right. They probably did not know about smart recovery. No one ever really talked about it. I think the, I think the, the guy who gave the training did. So it wouldn't surprise me that they wouldn't, but it, in a way it kind of does, but it, I don't know. It's interesting. Well, and you got to remember when a peer support specialist, good, bad, or indifferent, back here in the Midwest, uh, especially, uh, so many of your treatment centers, are purely a 12-step oriented uh, treatment center. And, and it's, uh, so they don't know about SMART. And when you appear specialist, you work for them, they're not teaching you anything about SMART. They're saying you got to direct them because there's only, one, there's only one way to get better, and that's 12-step. So I know. So they have these, like, um, they have these uh, meetings that um, the state of Missouri – sponsors called echoes show me echoes and they have them for a peer support specialist twice a month and i went to my first one yesterday and it was on motivational interviewing mm. isn't that a, that's from smart or it's something smart does right that's it's 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 probably as i said that much earlier in the broadcast yeah that when i ask questions this motivational enhancement therapy and that's when you ask those who, what, why, where, and how questions. That's exactly what they were talking about yesterday at the meeting. But nobody ever said, oh, you know what? You can go to SMART, and that's where you might find this. <laughs> yeah, because as a facilitator, that's how I, I – matter of fact, for a good facilitator or any facilitator, and I've said this in SMART management meetings because we have those a couple of times a week where facilitators come in if they have issues with their meetings. And and I is so often I say the best tool – that we as facilitators were given was the ability to know how to do motivational interviewing. But if you, but you need one other thing when you do motivational interviewing, you also have to be very adept at reflective or active or empathetic listening, because if you don't understand what they're saying, you're not going to ask the right questions. Boy, it sounds like you really do a good job. You really got it down. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> well, been doing this for a while yeah i have have, haven't you like i said i've never met anybody who's done been doing this for as long as you and goes back as far into the history of smart as you do you know going back to what was it called again rational recovery rational recovery wow i remember so see i started off in aa back in the 80s 1988 was when i got sober so and i remember people talking about rational recovery um although not in a positive way (laughs) Well, they didn't know about it. They didn't know anything about it. They didn't know anything about it. But you know what it was? It was bottom line is making choices. And it was, but one of the biggest tools that rational recovery used and, and smart recovery borrowed from this and created their own. If we have a couple more minutes is back in rational recovery, we had something called AVRT. It was addictive voice recognition technique. And what it was is to recognize it. Remember that catch it, check it, change it. We talked about earlier. Okay. It's, Understand that voice. Catch that voice. That voice is real. It's there. And it's it. But you have to separate it from you. 
Okay. Give it a name. And it could be it, it could be a jerk, it could be you MF or it could be any kind of you know, <laughs> term you want to use. Right. And and usually make it a negative one because you don't want to you don't want to give it a name that you like. You want to give it a name you don't like. So when it came to smart recovery, they created one that's called the disarm tool. And the disarm tool is a way to disarm that voice and give it a name. So it's the same basic concept. You know, when I took the smart recovery training, it's like I had to relearn acronyms and the names, but the, but the tools were almost the same. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So it was really interesting to make that transition and easy. And for me, it was fairly easy to make that transition from the smart. Uh, yeah, but to give you an example of, of how uh, I have a lady, a young lady that took that tool and she went one step further with that disarm tool. She called me up a number of months ago that, she had to come, she wanted to come to meetings. She wanted, she had to quit drinking that her liver was in liver failure. And she was on a list to get a liver transplant. And I had to write a verification for her that she was coming to the meetings. And I get a call not too long ago. And she said, I got some great news. I said, what's that? She said, and she wasn't even in my area. She was in a totally different city. You know, uh, 300 miles away and it wasn't KC was another direction. But in the meantime, she says, um, I don't need a liver transplant anymore. My liver somehow recovered. Oh, I might cry. Okay. Now what she also shared with me is that the doctor told her that she didn't tell her how bad she really was, that she had about a 10% chance of living. Mm, my God. Okay. And you know, things do happen whether they're coincidental miracle, I don't, you know, call whatever serendipity, whatever you want to call it, but her liver, because she quit drinking probably one drink or before it went to terminal, terminal. And okay. Now she goes to the grocery store now and she passes the liquor aisle. She looks at it and goes, you no good MF her. She's not having an urge. What she did was she created a belief system. That that liquor was a serial killer, and it was killing her liver, her kidneys, her pancreas. It was killing her. So she looked at it as a killer and called it a no good MFR. <laughs> and she yells it out in the store. Wow. Just <laughs> <laughs> screams it. So she took the disarm tool and took it one step further. Sure. Because now she's seeing that she saw it as creating a police system. And I also believe that. You can intellectually understand you have a problem, but I also uh, think that you have to have a creative belief system to go along with it. And I'll give you, and I'll give you a quick example of that. When I went into treatment, first thing they did was took my blood pressure. I was uh, my my drug of choice was cocaine. My blood pressure was two forty over one eighty. Good God. Okay. Well, that's way beyond the point of stroking out and having a heart attack. The next day, they did an echo on my heart. The heart was enlarged. I created, I already knew, as I said, when the day I, I stopped using, which was a couple of days before I went to check myself in, I intellectually said to myself, you're never using again. It was like a lightning bolt went off in my head. When I went in and they told me about the blood pressure and the heart being enlarged, I created a belief system that the next time I use a drug, it'll kill me. And again, here it is I'm coming up on 29 years. I So I tell people to create a belief system. Now, when I say a belief system, I'm not talking about a belief in a higher power. 
I'm not talking about a belief in, in God. I'm not talking about a belief in the doorknob. What I'm talking about, <laughs> what I'm talking about is that if I said, John, if I said, do you believe me if I tell you that the sun will be in the sky tomorrow? Do you believe that? With that? You may not see it. It may be cloudy. Right. But do you believe that the sun will be in the sky tomorrow? I do. Why? Because I've seen this. I've seen the sun in the sky all the time. <laughs> okay. You know, so the point is, your your history has told you that. Right. Has taught you that, right? Right. You've seen it. You, you've experienced it. Your experiences have taught you that. So if I say to you that if you drank tonight or did a drug, whatever it is, your drug of choice, do you believe me when I tell you your consequences are going to be the same or worse tomorrow? Yeah, I do believe that. Why? Because that's what has always happened. That's what I've always seen. Yeah, it's been my experience. It's their experience, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That's your belief system kicking yep, in. It is. That's yep. not intellectual anymore. No, it isn't. You're right. It's it's an internalized. It's part of what it's I internalized believe. internalized differently. Yeah, it totally is. And and that is that is uh, that is my belief system now. I do believe that. I mean, that's uh, you know, the way I see alcohol now is 100% different than how I saw it, you know, when I was a 25-year-old kid. And that's the whole idea of smart recovery. It's reframing how you how you think and how you see things and how you perceive them and how you react to them. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I, I over the last couple of weeks, it seems like I've met some some people in St. Louis. I'd like to I'd like to visit sometime, maybe in more normal times. I have to come over into one of your meetings over there or something. And I know you're doing one online here in KC. I need to check that out too. Well, it's it's not only on. Well, I have it listed both in KC and in St. Louis. Okay, it's on Monday nights and Thursday nights. Okay. Okay, so whatever meeting you see Monday night, it's the same Zoom numbers to get into on the Thursday, Thursday night. Okay. And what time is it? Is it seven? Seven o'clock. Okay. All right. I'll check. See, it I out. had a warm up before I came here tonight. Oh, that's right. You did. <laughs> I did too. I had a podcast interview just before I talked to you. Oh, it can't be as interesting as this one. <laughs> no, no, you did, you did a great job. I really enjoyed it. I really did. Um, I'm so glad I had this opportunity because I've only talked to to smart people just a few times, and I think it's a great, great program. And, you know, there's no reason I tell people, you know, you don't have to stay in one silo. You don't have to just do one thing. You know, do multiple things. You know, go to smart. Go to AA if you want to. Whatever you want to do, you know, you you don't have to just put yourself in a box when there's so much out there. And that's the main thing is, again, it's whatever – you think that's why, you know, it's funny because a lot of other programs say we believe in all pathways. But if you say, if you say to them, well, how about small recovery? Oh, no, that, that can't work. And, and yet we really believe that you, you're we're open to all pathways because I have many people that do a 12 step program along with ours. Again, one is more of a spiritual awakening or and ours is problem solving. I, I think have, it's I great. a lady that calls me up all the time. She says, I have my, this guy, he's my sponsor. He tells me if I don't get to a meeting right away, I'm going to, I'm going to use again and die. And I, and I said, well, what do you think you're going to do? She said, well, I'm not going to use, cause I'm not going to die from that. I said, so don't listen to him. You know, so I gave her a practical way of, right, of right, right. <laughs> you, know, you know, but she figured it out for herself. You know, it's like, all I had to do was ask the question. Well, thanks again, Arthur. I did. I did appreciate this. I'm going to go ahead and play the music out. And that is another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help us out, a couple ways you can do that. Head on over to patreon.com slash AA, no, patreon.com slash Beyond Belief Sobriety. 
or you can just uh, go to our website, beyondbeliefsobriety.com and, and uh, click on the donate button, but you don't have to do any of that. We're going to continue podcasting because I like doing it. Arthur, thank you so much. I really did enjoy this conversation and in more normal times. I love St. Louis. I'll go to St. Louis sometimes. I might let you know and if I'm there, it'd be kind of fun to see you and a few other people. That would be great. It'd be good to see you, John. You take care and love to do this again. Whenever we you will. Want. Absolutely. It's good to have a smart contact.